Hello and welcome to the One Football Premier League podcast. Brighton do the North London double. Chelsea hoping to avoid unwanted treble. The show goes on for Liverpool's quadruple, plus much more. As I, your host Matt Froelich, am joined today by Joel Sanderson Murray. Hello. And Dan Burke. Hello. I saw a little smirk on your face there, Joel, when I mentioned the quadruple. It wasn't a smirk, it was a wince, because <laughs> <laughs> people keep on trying to make it happen. And then when we do... Awful, isn't it, being in contention for four trophies at this stage of the season? Bloody terrible, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as it happens, you're going to get knocked out of one, or lose one final, or lose the league. And everyone's there like, ah, but you don't want to win the quadruple, didn't you? Nah, shut up. <laughs> You're like Dan, you're like Dan when everyone said City had won the league in like mid December and he was furious, furious when things were yeah. turned around. And I was right, wasn't I? I yeah. was right. So well, you know your stuff. Um, <laughs> let's not get into that. We'll get onto that. We'll get onto that a little bit later. First off, I've got an expert quiz question for you. I think it's expert because I came up with it um, <laughs> with some with some uh, quick research. Which came first? It's a question for you. The first FA Cup final or the first chocolate Easter egg in Britain? Oh, happy Easter, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> happy what Easter. came first? Was, the chicken, was this, the FA um, Cup, or the egg? Was this based off that, that woman on social media who had the world's oldest Easter egg? Uh, no, but that? I did see that today. Wasn't it like 60 years old or something? Yeah, she spends like 80 quid a year or something keeping it keeping it cold. Just Just eat it. At this point, it's hours, yeah. surely it's going to taste disgusting now. Yeah, it'd probably kill you, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, what a way to go. your question, I would say the FA Cup final. Yeah, I, I think guess. so too. Yeah. The FA Cup final was first. Right. In 1873, J.S. Fry and Sons of England introduced the first chocolate Easter egg. And in 1872, one year earlier, was the FA Cup <laughs> final. At Kennington Oval in London, where Wanderers beat the Royal Engineers by a single goal, scored by Morton Betts, who was playing under the pseudonym A.H. Checker, which I find bizarre. <laughs> like, you're not writing a book. It's not a pen name. <laughs> uh, well, in, is that because he didn't want his employers to know there or something? Or was this some sort of... I, I, I don't know. That's, that's all I could find. Um, that's, the, that's the level my research went to, the depth. Yeah. Although if I scored the winner in an FA Cup final, I'd want my name plastered everywhere. Not some <laughs> sort of fake pseudonym. Anyway. Maybe uh, it was really a woman. And she maybe. Want, uh, yeah, it was one of those kind of... Maybe. A.H. Checker. The name goes down in history. Uh, you could tweet me or one football with any other sort of random stuff or fun questions like that uh, at Matt underscore Froelich or at one football yeah you could also drop us an email with your questions the address is podcast at onefootball.com but silliness aside let's get on to the FA Cup to the serious stuff Manchester City Liverpool the second meeting in seven days between the two um, Joel did you see a difference in the way the two played based off of last week or was it business as usual and just another opponent? I think it was a completely different game, Matt. But I think before sort of going into more detail about it, I think the caveat should be that the caveat we should take from it is that City went into it battered and bruised from what happened in Madrid in midweek, which was absolutely ideal for Liverpool. And obviously, Pep Guardiola has made a bit, or seemed to have made a decision there to possibly not throw in the FA Cup, but has made it less of a priority than trying to go on to win the Premier League and the Champions League. And his team selection has maybe suggested that by 
okay, Saka Stefan probably would have started anyway, but the back four was, you know, a bit sort of um, mix and match, wasn't it? Fernandinho doesn't really start that game if it, if the rest of the field, all the midfielders are completely fit. Um, so that, you know, that wasn't City's full strength side. I mean, I'm not sure their full strength side looks like because all the players are quality, but they were playing against a fully uh, full strength Liverpool team. And, um, and, and for that reason, that, that should be mentioned, but I think Liverpool also there shouldn't be any credit taken away from Liverpool because I think that first forty five minutes was one of the best under Jurgen Klopp. They didn't let Man City breathe, um, in terms of facing a different side from the last Sunday. It looked like they learned a lesson from last Sunday in terms of being able to control possession better and, and not letting City get out. Much in the way that City didn't let Liverpool get out in the league game. And they they were phenomenal. And, and to be honest, it didn't feel real for the at half time. Like, and, and that might be from the state, the delirious state I was in, um, from the fun I was having at said moments. But also just because it's, City were poor, and Liverpool made them look poor. And, and obviously, what I mentioned inside led to that. But also the way Liverpool played is mentioned for that. Liverpool midfielders were incredible. Fabinho was poor at the Etihad and was phenomenal at Wembley. And uh, and Thiago Alcantara is just. Jesus Christ, some player to watch when he's on that kind of form. And I, I think Liverpool took what they learned from last Sunday, applied it. And, and we've, we've said, me and Dan have said a couple of times, when Liverpool and City play each other, it could either be 3 3 or one of the teams could win 4 0 and, and batter the other 4 0 and vice versa. Because when this was play, neither. <laughs> <laughs> it's mad. They made it look like that in the first half, that was going to be a rouse. And, and when, when these teams make mistakes, the other's going to capitalise on it because they're that good. Um, and that's what we saw for the first 25 minutes. And then the second half played out. And I can't say I remember too much about it, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, both both teams, you're right, are, are equally as good at punishing mistakes as the other one. It, it's it's kind of you'd get away with them against the lesser teams, but not against mm. those two. That's why I think there's so many goals. It's not because the defence is necessarily always that bad. The striking quality is absurd. Not another planet. Uh, Dan, is there a psychological advantage now for Liverpool heading into the title running? Uh, would you be petrified of facing them in the Champions League final <laughs> if if you get there? I'm already petrified of facing them in the Champions League final. I mean, the little the little. Uh, consolation that I told myself at the end of this game was, well, maybe this means, maybe this, the universe is going to set it up now so that we'll beat Liverpool in the final and that will be our redemption. That They they have this one, we'll have the Champions League final, but we'll see how that goes down. But yeah, psychological edge, I don't know really. I mean, before the game, I sort of told myself that whatever happens here, I'll try and be level-headed from City's point of view because I did, I did think it was a big ask for us to win this game after the Champions League game in midweek, Liverpool having the opportunity to rest a few players, us not having that opportunity and having a bit of a makeshift, for want of a better word, side in this game. It, it, it always felt unlikely that we, that we were going to win. And my hope was that maybe we'd get it to penalties and nick it on penalties or something like that. So if we had won that game, I wouldn't have been getting too carried away. Uh, the fact we've lost the game, I'm not getting too carried away either. It's, it's pointing that we're not going to win the treble this season, but you know, it's not the end of the world, really. Um, and now it's just a case of, well, we know what we've got to do now. We've got seven Premier League games left try and win all of those games, try and get to the Champions League semi-final and try and win that, uh, try and get to the Champions League final and win that one and um, and see how it goes. But it was, I mean, it's, it's weird that like I saw Klopp's comments about it being a great first half in Liverpool and, and what Joel just said there. Like, it's not that that wasn't my reading of the game, but I was just so focused on City that I didn't really sort of pay much attention to how Liverpool were playing. And I was kind of annoyed that 
as as well as Liverpool played, you know, the first goal came from a corner, which is always a bit annoying when you can see the goal like that from the first corner of the game. Second goal is obviously a, a goalkeeping howler. Third goal, really good finish from Mane. Um, I wonder if Stefan could have done a little bit better with that one as well. And it was almost like sort of wham, bam, thank you, man. We're 3-0 down at half time. It's any chance of winning the game at that point was gone, really. The best we could hope for was some monumental effort in the second half to come back and draw 3-3. And in the end, I think City almost... They scored that first goal to get it back to 3-1. And I was kind of like, oh, are, we, are they going to have a, a proper fight back now? And, and almost, I think they just accepted... Oh, we'll, we'll just shake hands on 3-1 now. And then he scored that, that second goal late on. It was almost like, whoa, this wasn't supposed to happen. Now we've got to try and go for an equaliser. We were just quite content to just lose the game respectfully. Like it was it was a strange, strange afternoon, really. And uh, yeah, I definitely think the um, the league game the week before was a better measure of, of the two teams than this one. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree. And also on that Sadio Mane second one, the pass from Thiago. I know you mentioned Thiago earlier, Joel. The way he just sort of dug it out. At such a lateral point as well, like directly to his right-hand side. Unbelievable. Um, what do we think about the semi-finals being at Wembley, Joel? Should they be they be playing elsewhere? Every time I mention this, everyone goes, Villa Park, yeah. Like <laughs> Villa Park, some sort of monumental homage to English football. I mean, I know it's a good old ground, but it can be elsewhere. Yeah, not just Villa Park, but I mean, there's Old Trafford as well. It used to have them, didn't it? And um and, and yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of him, of, of, of the semi-finals being at Wembley, to be honest. And that, speaking from two teams that had to come from the Northwest down to London at the weekend when there was no trains that had to happen. And obviously, fair play to everyone who managed to get down there. But um, ju- just in general, when, when that is not the case, I, I just think it maybe takes a bit of the the, the, the special part of the, the FA Cup final day Absolutely. Away, from, away from it a bit because... Um, Wembley is, you know, it's a showpiece occasion, and, and the national team should play there, and it should be just for finals only. And I, if you play the semi-finals, there, I, I don't know, it just, it just ruins a bit of sort of the, the magic of <laughs> magic of the cup, should we say? <laughs> and I think if you go to sort of a neutral venue, and, and, and um, it's a bit more, it's obviously going to be less fans be able to get in because you're looking at it's either going to be Old Trafford eight thousand or or uh, Villa Park, which is what close to forty and. And Villa Park deserves credit because I think it's probably one of the best stadiums in England. And if you're if you're listening to this and you want to come to a, a Premier League stadium, I would say there aren't too many better for you to get the proper English fan experience and go to Villa Park. To be honest with you, um, but yeah, I just we know why the FA want to keep playing the FA Cup semi-finals at at Wembley, and I don't think that's going to change because sadly money rules football. But uh, yeah, I can't complain too much because we've got a bit of a good winning run there now. But um, yeah, it's it's not for me, Matt. To be honest with you, I, I would put Villa Park in the in the hat. I would also put St James's Park. I mean, talk about a pain a pain in the ass to get to. But I'd put St James's Park in Ellen Road. I think Ellen Road's cool. I'd put Goodison Park if you want to see forty five thousand people who just hate football. And I don't understand why they go to watch the game, but uh, <laughs> we're going to watch. The I think Villa Park has going for it. It's in the Midlands, isn't it? So it's, yeah. it's theoretically easy for, for fans from northern and southern teams to get to, unlike this uh, southern bias at Wembley that uh, <laughs> only caters to people who travel by tube. <laughs> Every semi-final will be played at Plymouth Argyle from now on. <laughs> as far away as you could possibly get. Uh, the other yeah. semi-final took place on Sunday and saw Chelsea beat Crystal Palace. Um Chelsea trying to avoid, like I said in the headlines, an unwanted treble of losing three finals in a row. 
never ever has it happened before. A couple of teams have lost two in a row, but they lost to Arsenal in 2020. Um, and then Leicester City just under a year ago. So they'll be trying to avoid that uh, against Liverpool. And they also did not allow a permit for Loney Conor Gallagher, Conor Gallagher even, to play in the match. Is that poor on Chelsea's part, Dan? I mean, I, I was thinking, A, they didn't let him uh, experience a high-pressure situation, which could be beneficial for them in the future, you know, the, the semi-final of, of a cup competition. And B, they've also robbed him. They've robbed a guy of his childhood dream of playing at Wembley in a, in a major tournament semi-final. Yeah, but then if he if he scores against them, they uh, they look like idiots. Then don't they? Like that's obviously why they've done it. Uh, I think it's pr- pretty clever on their part, especially the form he's been in this season to to strip Palace of you know one of their best players. Um, I've always thought that it was a bit of a, a con that the that lone players uh, you know can't play against the parent yeah. clubs. It's a bit bit of a shame, really. But you can understand why it's the, the rule is in place, can't you? I mean, imagine imagine if uh, it wasn't, and, and someone like Conor Gallagher scores an own goal against his parent club, they'd be all sort of sort of outcry, wouldn't they? they were about that. So, I think it makes um, it makes sense to just have that that rule in place. And I don't even know why they allow these permits to be put in. Really, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if uh, it just makes sense for them to just say a blanket ban on it, and it's never going to happen. But yeah, I, th- I thought it was probably reasonable. Uh, from Chelsea's point of view, and, and Conor Gallagher's got a, a long career ahead of him. Uh, maybe he'll be playing for Chelsea in a final next season or semi-final, and, and they'll lose that one as well. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. When it comes to Chelsea, you could probably guarantee that he'll he'll at least get a chance in some semi-final if he stays at the club. Um, I think yeah. it actually really completely undid Vieira's game plan. They just they are such a better team with him in, of course. It's a little Ooh. bit harsh. Having said that, when I think back to my football manager days, I definitely, definitely did not let any player play against the parent <laughs> club. No chance. Uh, Joel, Chelsea might be a little hell-bent on some revenge after the Carabao Cup final loss. Um, Ruben, Loft- Ruben Loftus-Cheek said, we want to get them back. Simple as that. Are you quivering in your boots that one of Chelsea's bench players for the last few years has given it big <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's nothing the football narrative crowds love more than a revenge story, Matt. So, um, you know, there, there is part of me that's a bit fearful about it because, I mean, Chelsea are more than capable of beating Liverpool on their day as much as Liverpool are capable of beating Chelsea. And, and that um, EFL, EFL Cup final crew went either way. And to be honest, Chelsea maybe just edged it and <laughs> they didn't start, stop scoring offside goals. They might have won the game. But um, absolutely, that'd, that'd, be a, that'd be a really tight game. And the thing is, you've got to two of the best coaches in Europe against each other and anyone could win on a day. And and yeah, I'm a bit fearful when you think of revenge is going to be on the mind and we're back here again. And, you know, it's just going to be another 120 minutes slog because it's going to go to extra time and probably penalties. And as long as Kepa doesn't come on or start, Chelsea <laughs> man, <laughs> something That's the, re- the, the redemption narrative yeah, right that's there. It, the redemption story. <laughs> yeah. Ah, none of that, boys. Come on. I'm trying to think, would that be two weeks before the Champions League final, potentially? Yes, it I is. Yes, so, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Which is the same day as the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, probably one of the best days of the calendar. Summer, yeah. So. Oh, <laughs> what? A, if you're trying to reach Joel on that Saturday, don't. <laughs> Get it. <laughs> Absolutely no chance. That could be a potentially big three weeks. FA Cup final, the last weekend of the season, and then the Champions League final. But you're not going to do the quadruple anyway, are you, Joel? So it doesn't matter. <laughs> the quadruple? Is that a new one? The, the quadruple, even. 
that's simple because we could get all four trophies and everything get relegated. That's that's the aim now. That's what we're aiming for. I would actually, uh, off the top of my head, I couldn't. But as far as rival seasons go, I couldn't think of anything better for Liverpool, worse for Everton. Winning everything and you go down. I've I've, reti- I've said it to a few mates like at the weekend that probably would just pack in football after that because it's never going to get any better. Probably just go watch Marine or Tramia Rovers for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> I think all football should just if Liverpool win the quadruple, that should be. We should just say we've had a good run. That yeah. was football was fun, <laughs> but forget it now. There's no point. Oh gosh, I I remember when um, Spurs played the Champions League final. We lost to Liverpool. It was a few days after Arsenal played in the Europa League final against Chelsea. The amount of Arsenal friends I had saying, if we lose the Europa League and Spurs win the Champions League, I'm quitting football. But that's it. I've done forever. And I think, you know what? I probably would have done the same. We were so close. Anyway, we'll move on from that into the Premier League action from the weekend. Um, First up, Manchester United, 3-2 against Norwich. Cristiano Ronaldo bagged another hat-trick, taking his tally to 60 career hat-tricks. He's also on 99 Premier League goals. Um, So he will no doubt join the 100 club before the end of the season. Um, He will be missing, unfortunately, from the the game against Liverpool, which is actually this evening. We're recording on Tuesday evening due to the death of um, one of his children at birth. I guess we can only... From myself, you guys, and the whole One Football family, send our condolences to him and his partner Georgina and their, their families at this time as well. Um, in in an unimaginable scenario, um, the game was won because of, of Cristiano Ronaldo's hat trick. I was very disappointed in Rashford coming off the bench and not really putting much together. Um, Dan, where do you see his future? Because I'm always very interested in this left-wing versus central striker debate from Marcus Rashford? Because if you put him through the middle, you need goals. And if you put him out wide, what are you expecting from him? Yeah, it's an odd one, isn't it? I mean, there was there was some talk, I think it was after they, they lost to City a few weeks ago, that uh, he's not happy and doesn't have his role at the club anymore and would be interested in, in a move away, which would have seemed unimaginable even, you know, 12 or so months ago, really, for Rashford, who was a kid who's come through the academy there, you know, boyhood United fan, was a real sort of dream come true for him to make the grade at United and, and that, the early part of his career was so successful and so promising there for him to have fallen off so badly this season that he's, you know, lost his place in the in the team. You know, Anthony Langer seems to be ahead of him in the pecking order nowadays and you wouldn't really want to see him starting down the middle because I don't think he has that reliability in front of goal, really. So he gets shunted out onto the wing. I don't think that's his best position either. It's it's a tricky one, really. I think maybe a, a move away would be the best thing for him and for United to, to kind of move on at this point. And where he ends up going next, I don't know. Maybe maybe he tries his hand abroad. You see, you've seen a lot more players giving that a go nowadays, aren't you? A lot more English players than you used to. Maybe that's something. The only other thing you can think that maybe he sort of takes the the, uh, the Danny Welbeck route and goes via Arsenal and you know ends up <laughs> ends up at Brighton in a few years, uh, you know, coming off the bench late on and missing a chance, yeah, as you always uh, point yeah. out, Matt. Maybe that's oh, maybe that's I'm what his future get out to holds. Brighton but, shortly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for for Rashford, you know, he's a he's an articulate, educated young man, and you know, done done great work in the community over the time, and it, it is a shame, even as a as a City fan like myself, to see that his career has hit the buffers a little bit. So. My advice would to, would be him for you know take take a chance on something else try try a new experience go to Spain go to Italy go to wherever you can really wherever you can you can see an opportunity Germany possibly you know somewhere like Dortmund maybe a good fit for him and and uh, and trying to sort of reboot your career that way. 
Do you think it's best that he goes to a place that allows him basically to stay in the team regardless of form? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, there's no guarantee anywhere, is there? If if you if you you're looking for that, then you you're not really an ambitious footballer because every footballer is going to have competition for places at good teams, and and you want to you want to play in a good side. Everybody does, but yeah, I get your point. You don't want to go somewhere where you're instantly going to be competing with someone like Cristiano Ronaldo yeah, or, exactly. or an 80 million signing like Jadon Sancho. You want somewhere where you've got a bit more of a chance to kind of get get some games under your belt and starting games is very important for players, isn't it? You can't be coming off the bench all the time. So yeah, I don't know what the, what the future holds for him, whether we'll actually end up leaving or, or not. You, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if new new manager comes in in the summer and he has a, a fresh idea for how they want to play and he, he finds a role for Rashford and, and he kicks on from there. But the way things are going, it's, it's looking like a move away might be best. Because I think that of Tammy Abraham... Like he he is Roma's starter. He is Roma's striker without doubt. Like there's no question that as soon as he's back from injury or whatever, this and that, he plays the majority of the games. And look what that's done. Just that run of form. And now I think he's the second highest scoring Englishman in Europe behind Kane in all competitions. Unbelievable. Uh, Norwich are six points off Everton, having played two more. And it looks like their time is almost up. Do you expect to see them bouncing back again, Joel, and be with us in the summer of 2023, back in the Premier League. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's all. That'll go up. Form will go up this year, now we go down. We're back up next year, form will go down. And it's actually going to carry on until the Super League ends up eating up the Premier League. So, yeah. Someone said, I remember there was a great tweet about the fact that they're just destined to never play each other ever again, Fulham and Norwich. <laughs> That was it. They'll just they'll, they'll... I feel like at the end of the season, the fourth official needs to hold up a substitute board that just says Fulham Norwich on it. And they'll just <laughs> their mascots will just high five and run back onto the Premier League pitch. And Alexander Mitrovic just signs for the other club. When, the, yeah. when one gets promoted, he stays in the championship with that one. Then when they get promoted, he stays in the championship with the other one. Him and Pookie <laughs> just consistently swapping roles. Yeah. Um <laughs> Next up, though, Anton Newcastle to St. James's Park, where their 2-1 victory at home over Leicester took them 12 points clear relegation. And planning for next season has surely begun, despite the fact that Eddie Howe said there won't be a big summer of spending, which sort of completely ruins the point of a takeover. Um, but it does prove that all you need to avoid relegation is a mid-season takeover. Who knew? <laughs> All this time, all this effort. Uh, Bruno Guimaraes, I think that's how you pronounce it, was the match winner with two goals, the second deep into injury time. Uh, Joel, is he the one player you'd mark out as the leader of the new Newcastle? I think he'll still be one of their best players as they rise through the ranks, as it were, and even challenge top four in a few times, in a few years. Yeah, I think you're looking at the trajectory of him and, and what he's shown so far. He looks, And what he's shown at Leon as well, to be fair, he looks like he's got the potential to... And maybe even like he keeps it up in like eighteen months time. Maybe one of the the bigger boys might be able to look at him as well because I mean it's taken him a little while to actually get into the first team because I know John Joe Shelby was informed when he when he joined and he he's not really been able to muscle him out and Shelby's kept his place. But Gimares, is that how you say it? Gimares, um, I think. I think every time I've signed him in FM, I keep going Gimares to me. It's a lot better than I do. <laughs> but uh, no. He's, He's got the look of a, a Newcastle cult hero, and, and in the way that they love their number nines, he's got that sort of. He looks like he's a bit mad, but um, and, and loves the passion of the fans, and he, and he revels in that. And I love the celebration for the winner on Sunday as well. He, he really went for it, and but he's just he, he looks like he's got some talent as well because you can tell with certain players when they play against uh, 
opposition and he, they look a cut above them and he, he's got that style about him where when he gets put his foot on the ball, he knows he's got he can create his own time with it and take his time with it. <clears throat> and he's got the skill in the past to um to, to bring it out. There was one pass he played to I think it was Matt Target at the back post in the first half and Target mm. on Target. <laughs> what a fun that is. Um but there's, <laughs> there's this little cheeky dink and it's just like not not every player in the bottom half can do that and he's got that and um yeah, he's, he looks like he's got some talent. A fair way to Newcastle, they've got a player on there, haven't they? I think as well, they're in that good position where they now, like you said, if one of the big boys comes in, this, that and the other, they don't have to accept anything. Newcastle don't need the money. They're not going to have to sell to buy uh, uh, for no. most points. But if Newcastle are, let's say, in European competitions in 18 months' time, then players can maybe kick up a fuss and want to leave and that's maybe yeah what kind of player they are whether they, they are in it for yeah for the financial rewards or they're in it for but, career but they can hold out is what oh, i mean yeah. as a club who doesn't yeah. necessarily who need the money uh, as it seems no one does in the premier league um leicester though are clearly focusing on europe as they reach their first ever european semi um lots has been said about their fall from challenging the top four recently but surely rogers can Sorry, surely Rogers can't be questioned. Um, and it's a big if, if they add the Conference League to the recent FA Cup and Community Shield triumphs, Dan. You're big on the on the Rogers fraudometer, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd draw a line at calling the Community Shield a triumph, personally. But all right. Well, it, just cause they, they did beat City in the final, to be fair. But no, I, I don't think generally that's considered a triumph, is it? But yeah, I'll, t- I'll take your point. No, it's been an interesting season for Leicester, hasn't it? Because the past couple of years, they've had this uh, worrying pattern whereby they've, they've been pushing the top four all season, look really good for it, and then falling away right at the end. And all the question marks have been coming out about Rodgers and whether he's a bottle job and whether, you know, people are pointing back to the, his time at Liverpool when he didn't win the league there and saying, is he is he a manager for the big occasion or a manager who can sort of get you over the line and stuff like that. And obviously winning the FA Cup last season was, was a triumph for them, was a really good achievement. And, and if they do go on to win the Conference League this year, I think it will be a slightly lesser, but still very decent uh, accomplishment for them. But... Uh, in terms of the league position, it's been a disappointing season, no doubt about it. I think we're seeing the effects of, of Jamie Vardy's uh, time has caught up with him this year. He hasn't been a very reliable player for Leicester. Pat Sandaka hasn't really hit the ground running the way that many people expected him to. He hasn't really bedded into the Premier League properly yet and, and probably you know might not see the, the best of him until next season at the earliest now. You're seeing players like Kasper Schmeichel who are you know having low-key, quite poor seasons. Defensively, they've been quite poor. Leicester... And they've got quality players like James Madison and Harvey Barnes, who are, who are sort of there or thereabouts, but they've just been about very up and down, very inconsistent all season, really. So they're not going to finish uh, in the the European places by league position this year, I don't think. I think the best chance of getting in Europe next year is is winning that Conference League. I think that should be where they put all their uh, their eggs into now, into that basket, and go for that. And uh, yeah, Brendan Rodgers will, uh, you know, have a, a nice, another shiny trophy in his cabinet to wave at people when they start calling him a fraud again, won't we? If, if that happens, so. <laughs> You say when people, you mean when you start when, calling When I start calling him a fraud, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, they've got uh, Jose Mourinho's Roma in the semi-finals, I believe. They have, yeah. Do they not? Yeah. Rather tasty title to look forward to. Um, one team in dire need of a trophy, though, is Spurs. And, uh, believe me, that hurts to say. Uh, they did their top four Even hopes. a community shield triumph. I was just about to say to you when you said that, I was like, <laughs> what? A day out at Wembley and lifting a trophy? <laughs> I, I don't care if it's community shield. 
I'm all for it. Uh, Would you have an open top bus parade for the Community Shield if you won it? (laughs) Me or Tottenham? Because I would. Do you, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've just I've just rided topless on the uh, on the one floor to Barnet. Uh, anyway, I uh, Spurs' great top four hopes were done great harm by losing one 0 to Brighton on Saturday. Who did the North London double after beating Arsenal um, the weekend before? Uh, I guess my first question, Joel, is who deserved a red card more, Kulusevski for that elbow or Muepu's high boot? Well, they both seem to get sense. I mean, from from Muepu, I mean. He got lucky that it wasn't even like second. Never mind. Yeah, a culmination. Yeah, second, yeah. Is <laughs> he just intent on fouling everyone? Which, to be fair, fade to me. He obviously just woke up on Saturday morning and went, I've got, I've got chaos on my mind today. And then he went out and proved it. But yeah, I mean, the high boots alone. I mean, you've seen it given this this year, haven't you? You've seen it given. You've seen it uh, a red card issue flat this year in the, in the Premier League this season. Um, so I was surprised by that. But I also thought Kuzeski was very, very lucky. It's, it's not one where. You you fling you go, you jump up you fling your arm up and he can say okay it's he just uses his arm for 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 levitation this was just yeah a bit a bit nauseating to be honest with you and then surprised they both got away with one to be honest uh, Spurs were awful though an absolute shadow of the team that have won the previous four uh, credit to Graham Potter oh, we should have brought Alex on for this. He's he's Graham <laughs> Potter's number one fan um, and Potter's game plan was to, to frustrate Spurs, and they did it very well. Uh, but I want to know, Dan, how do you outdo one of the oldest game plans in the book? The, the reason I ask is because there's always this, how do you stop this new player? How do you stop this new system, this continental three-man midfield or whatever? Teams have been sitting back, soaking up pressure and winning one nil in the last minute since before that first FA Cup final. So, <laughs> so why has no one figured out how to stop it? I mean, the way to stop it is to is to score an early goal, isn't it? Really, and uh, and that always undoes the the game plan completely. That's always the way to go. But it's uh, often easier said than done. If you've got very creative players, you can find a way through. But even some of the best, most creative players in the world can struggle with it. And that's you know, I my fellow City fans often get frustrate, frustrated when we drop points in these kind of games. You know, it's the same against uh, when we lost to Spurs a few weeks ago. I remember a lot of City fans being really pissed off with that. And I was like, well, what do you do really? You know, Spurs defended so well on the day that they. they they block up the space between the lines, so there's there's nowhere to work in, in those little half spaces, those little holes in between the in between the lines, and it just makes it incredibly difficult. And you think something that Spurs have that a lot of teams don't is a player like Harry Kane, who, who's become very adept at dropping deep, picking the ball up, and, and threading passes through. And I think you saw uh, some nice tactics from Potter in this game, in that he had um, he had Basuma basically uh, man marking him, didn't he? And he did a really good job on him, Basuma, I thought, and really, really stifled Kane and really didn't didn't allow him to to create anything. And, and Son wasn't in the game very much either, I think. Did Spurs not have a, a shot on goal in this game? A shot? I think until target about the 70th minute think, or something. I don't think they had one on target at all, in fact. Oh. Um, so, yeah, it felt like it was, it was drifting towards nil-nil, but then... Having seen Brighton against Arsenal the week before, I had a feeling they, they might nick it in the last minute. And I mean, I was sort of going into this game thinking, yeah, two two games away at Arsenal and Spurs in quick succession. You know, lightning rarely strikes in the same place twice in football, did it? But yeah, it was another great result for Brighton, and they've uh, they've put that really poor run of form behind them they had now and. Uh, mm. They're away at City on Wednesday, I was, so I was gonna see say, if they can I, make it three in a row. Yeah. I don't want to put the fear of God into you, Dan, but they, you know, they travel <laughs> up to Manchester in some very, very good form. Uh, talking of Arsenal, though, they followed that Brighton defeat with another loss away to Southampton. Uh, they lost three 
they lost the last three, sorry, four of the last five, and now they have apparently hired some consultancy experts to reevaluate the culture of the club. Joel, could you please do the honours and explain what you think that means and what a new Stop Arsenal Stop being rubbish. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Are they sort of having to go at the dinner ladies as well? Are they? What are they doing? <laughs> Top to bottom, apparently. I saw a tweet, and I can't, apologies, I can't remember who, who wrote it, but they're saying Arsenal spent all this money on these consultants when they could have just hired uh, Ray Paul and got him to take up the team out for a curry, and then <laughs> then he realised what the culture of Arsenal was really like. like a <laughs> cobra, that's like, the culture, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I mean, a, a few weeks ago, Arsenal fans were getting carried away, and, and rightly so, because you should get carried away when your team's doing well. That's what football is all about, but you know, there were people, and let's not name names, but people maybe in our office who support the club <laughs> and were telling us that Arsenal have uh, bloodied the nose of football once again and the big team's going to have to be wary of them next season. But um, here we are, they're falling off a cliff again. And it, and it, it is weird because they were in charge of the top four race and I'm not sure, we're quite sure what's happened. And, and now you're hearing about this, you know, the reevaluation of the culture of the club, which sounds like they're the crisis club again. And that always seems to be the case of Arsenal. Like every time we go through a bad run of form, they do tend to delve into a full-blown crisis. And there is just part of me thinking, has Arteta signed off on that or is someone above him? And, and it is Arteta's job actually safe in summer, no matter what happens, because there's a few things that have come out about him falling out with first-team players. And obviously, I can't say I know exactly what's going on behind the scenes, and maybe no one can, even maybe journalists who are close to the club, about what's going on there. But... He does seem to fall out with players a lot and then he does seem to discard them and then they either get sold, blown out or they come back in six, seven months later. And it's The murmurs are saying that that's happening with Alexander Lacazette now as well. And, okay, when that can happen with one or two players, you know, that's, you know he's he's obviously trying to build an ethos at the club and maybe their behaviour has not been up to the, the standards. But when it's happened with four or five, which it seems to have now, you wonder, is there a common denominator? So th- this is just me suggesting something, obviously not not saying that of any fact at all, but I do wonder whether Mikel Arteta is maybe a bit of the problem there, but we'll, we'll soon find out, I'd say. Yeah, I, I always think that the team compared to the club can actually be quite, I guess, different, can be quite separated. Like, realistically speaking, how often are the first team mixing in any way, shape or form with anyone at the club? Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if if there's a great spirit between the manager and the players, the club can be in a bit of disarray. We've seen it at times, you know, Arsenal are still challenging for the top four and apparently their culture's terrible. The same thing with Manchester United. Uh, the same thing behind the scenes at, at pretty much every club Jose Mourinho has been at recently. If maybe the team's not getting on well with Mourinho, but the club's absolutely fine. I feel like you can separate the two. And you may be right in, in thinking that Arteta, A, either has a sort of attitude that isn't really gelling with the Arsenal players, but then also you could suggest that they haven't brought in the right players for him. I think it it's definitely, definitely become more of a thing. And I think that Klopp, uh, Klopp spoke about it. What was he talking about? Oh, that was it. They were talking, I think he said that Liverpool wouldn't sign any players that hadn't been vaccinated because it said a lot about their character as well as about their vaccination status as well. And I think there has been a lot said about signing the right type of person 
as yeah, well as the right kind of football player. No dickhead policy yeah. at Liverpool, which, to be honest, I think that's common across a lot of clubs now. But no. you, you wonder how many of them uh, go beyond looking at their their, their skills and traits yeah. to play and then have a look at the personality. I think Liverpool and Man City do, I, I chose they do that better than most because of their recruitment's been spot on for the last couple of years. But I mean, it's all easier for me to to poke this in Arsenal now because we're in a bad run of form, and the chances are they could still finish in the top four in the season, and everything is rosy. But um, it but every time they do go into this bad run of form, it does seem like everything falls off rather than just it's a bad run of form. Mm. It feels like oh, there needs to be a, a, a real uh, root and branch review of the club and um, and then yeah. I don't know if that's just because they're one of the three biggest clubs in in England or or, or well. Or, well-known clubs in England should that they've got worldwide fan bases and obviously there's a lot more attention on, on them than most and and yeah that's, it's easier for, for that to happen but I don't know just something to me just doesn't seem quite right with everything at Arsenal to be honest with you um, and they lost to Southampton who are very Jekyll and Hyde I think was the term <laughs> I had to use I had to google that to make sure that was the right term uh, <laughs> they had an absolute shocker to Chelsea last week and then back that up with a win against Arsenal. Dan, uh, what does Ralph Hasenhull have to do to draw this sort of performance out of the team more regularly? I thought Fraser Foster, by the way, very, very good. Stunning saves. Yeah. He needs to probably bring the waistcoats back, Ralph, doesn't he? Because I'm sure the best performances have come when he's been he's been done in the waistcoat this season. But uh, yeah, Fraser Forster was really good here. I mean, he he's the sort of archetypal Southampton player that one week he looks like he's never played football before, and the next week it can be incredible. Um, and Southampton, I like that, aren't they? I mean, they're 12th in the league. They're two points ahead of Crystal Palace, and a lot of people said Crystal Palace have had a really good season, and Patrick Vieira's done a really good job. Whereas with Southampton, there's been moments where you've sort of said, oh, it looks like Ralph Hasnett has really got them where he wants them. They're really playing some nice stuff. The, the setup's really good. They're really hard to beat. And other times they'll ship six goals inside, what, 50 minutes was it against Chelsea yeah. or something? You think, bloody hell, is it another 9-0 here coming? <laughs> is it? Is it the annual shellacking at Southampton? So I think for the quality of play they've got, for the budget they're on, they're, they're in about the right place. I think Hasnett is a good coach. I don't think he's an exceptionally good coach. I think he's just he's decent enough, like... You know, I don't think Liverpool should be having to look at him when Klopp goes, as, as has been talked about in the past. I don't think, you know, he's he's the sort of calibre of manager that Man United will be looking for, but he's, he's about good enough for Southampton, if not, if not slightly better than, than Southampton. And they're not going to uh, qualify for Europe. They're not going to go down. They'll probably bring in some half-decent players again in the summer. Liverpool will then buy them in two years, uh, increase profit, <laughs> and then uh, the cycle begins again, doesn't it? That's just how that's just where they are in the food chain, really. I don't think there's much more else you can say about it. I wonder if there'll be like a, a waistcoat argument between him and Southgate. Just At like, least Southgate has a decency not to wear trainers with his. Though, yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Mind. All your fashion tips from Dan Burke on today's podcast as well. <laughs> right, moving on. It's just me and me and Dan left. Joel's internet issues have, have struck him out of the rest of the game. I've claimed his life. Yeah. <laughs> Joel is no longer online. So it's just me and Dan finishing off this one. We'll move on to Watford next. God rest actually. his soul. <laughs> <laughs> and to uh, Watford's comical defence, I've written down here. Um, I don't understand why they aren't looking at teams like Brentford, Leeds and Wolves, the way that they've come up and really managed to make a go of it in the Premier League, as opposed to just sort of going down again, like Norwich and Fulham have done. Okay, they maybe don't go down as much as Norwich and Fulham do, but they don't really look to have any plan of how to continuously stay up. Yeah, it's weird with them because people often talk about the merits of their their policy that the the positive family have had in place. You know, with this 
hiring and firing managers all the time and and the the, the pros and cons of it. I'm, I'm not really sure what the pros are at this point, really. It seems all cons to me. I mean, they're, they've done a successful job at, at investing in, in a squad that's good enough to, to get out of the championship, as we you know we've seen with Norwich as well. And but then when they're in the Premier League, they don't really seem to have a plan of how to consolidate the next step. You know. Ika Pozzo, uh, not Ika Pozzo, what's his name? Zisco Munoz, sorry, yeah, was the coach, wasn't he, when when they came up? Um, he he was seemed to be doing an okay job. I think some Watford fans would, would disagree with that. I remember seeing a few people at the time saying he wasn't doing a good job and they were quite glad to see the back of him. Then they bring in Claudio Ranieri for a portion of the season and things weren't going particularly well under him. They weren't going particularly awfully in the grand scheme of things either. And then you bring in Roy Hodgson, who, you know, he seemed like his... Uh, Last hurrah was with Palace last season. He seemed like he was done at that point, wasn't it? Really, a lot of people were wondering whether he was a bit too old and the game had left him behind. To see him back in the Premier League again so quickly was a bit of the shot, shots of the system. So I think they are one of the teams who will go down this season. I don't think they've been anywhere near good enough over the course of the season to stay up. And there are some decent players in there. There are a lot of kind of unknown quantities as well who they, they sort of bring in halfway through the season. And from this, this scouting network you've got, and you wonder where, where on earth are you unearth this guy from? And you know, lo and behold, it doesn't usually work out. So I don't know what the solution is to Watford. Maybe just stick with the manager for a full season and see where that gets you. You know, try and try and have a bit more stability and a bit more long-term planning because they just, they just seem very rudderless all the time, don't they? And as for Brentford, it was three wins on the spin. Uh, we can safely say they look forward to another year in the Premier League, I think, at this point. Uh, does that put the supposed relegation battle know-how theory that you need to be in this position before you know how to get out of it, completely out of the window, now they've somewhat mastered it? I guess so, but then I never really thought Brentford were in a, a relegation battle from from day one, really. You know, from the beating Arsenal at home on the very first game of the season, they looked like they were they were very well suited for Premier League football, very comfortable, and, and they've looked at times very good. I remember them drawing 3-3 with Liverpool in sort of September time, October time, whenever that was, and, and they look really good that day. They've, they've got some decent players. You know, Thomas Frank seems like a coach who, who knows what he's doing, and um, they had a bit of a wobble mid-season, then they brought in Christian Eriksen, and he's given them that real sprinkling of quality that they, they needed, and, that, and that's really helped get them back on track, I think, and, and the, the, they've played some nice stuff in recent weeks, got, got some really good results. Um, the one at White Chelsea being, being the main one, but this one was a, a good result as well. So, I think next season is going to be the true test for Brentford. You know, we've seen this this second season syndrome that has been a problem for teams in the past. You know, you think of Sheffield United recently. You wonder whether Brentford are going to have any difficulty keeping hold of players this summer, whether Christian Eriksen is going to stick around and, and sign a, a, another contract, um, whether Ivan Tony might be picked off or Brian Burmo might be might be signed. And, and it could be a very different story from them next season. But yeah, credit to them. They've had a, a great season, done really, really well in the first season back in the Premier League and I think they'll be here next year and uh, we'll see how they get on. Yeah, I don't want to sound all too doom and gloom at Brentford, but if anyone's going to have second season syndrome, I can see it being them. <laughs> not, yeah. not in a really negative way. I just think, I wonder how much they'll be able to do in the summer in terms of bringing in some real, real quality. Um, and yeah, again, if you're losing players like Ericsson or potentially Ivan Tony and Buemo as well, it will definitely be a difficult one for them. Uh, the final game we have is West Ham against Burnley. Uh, that Ashley Westwood injury looks really, really nasty. I hope all yeah. the best for him on his return. Um, I'm sort of putting West Ham at this point in the same boat as Leicester, where a stunning European away win means that they're basically putting all of their efforts in, into, uh, into winning the Europa League, one step up from Leicester's Conference League, because that is getting into the Champions League for West Ham. You know, they. I know they're still in the race for top four, 
But I think in the next couple of weeks, if they're to really be serious about it, and I know they've got a um, that they've got a really tough task ahead of them in the semi-finals as well. I think that it's it's probably better. It's probably worth it for them to to really go for that one. I mean, the one all draw at home to Burnley, managerless Burnley, which we'll get onto in a second, wasn't great. If Maxwell Cornet had buried that penalty at one nil, we could have been talking about a West Ham loss, even though they were the better side. Um, all they really need is a more prolific striker to put the ball in the back of the net, don't they? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, I, I like uh, Mikel Antonio a lot, but. I don't think you would say he's a top quality striker. I don't think he would uh, he would say that himself. Really, I think he's pretty pretty humble and knows knows his his, his status in the game, doesn't he? So, yeah, that that would be what takes West Ham to the next level because I think they have got quality in, in every department of the pitch, really, except possibly that one. Um, I think Moyes does need to come to a point in the season, yeah, where he he starts to to give up on West Ham's league position a little bit and starts to rotate a little bit and, and maybe save some of, some of his players for the the Europa League semi final because I think he's. Uh, He's sort of running them into the ground a little bit at the moment. A lot of the players who played against uh, against Leon in midweek played in this game and looked a bit sluggish at times and uh, a bit like, yeah, I think he could take take a leaf out of Brendan Rodgers' book definitely and, and, and start to prioritise Europe a little bit. You are seeing Leicester rotating their team a lot more than, than West Ham at the moment. Um, I think there will come a point where, where Moyes will probably do that. Perhaps I think they've got Chelsea away next weekend, which is obviously a, a derby, so they're, they're going to want to try and win that one if they can but um once uh, once that one's out of the way you might start seeing a, a more Euro- Europa League focused uh, team selections I, I did some digging into the West Ham's stats about their center forwards and this I tell you if you guess who it is I'll be even more amazed so <laughs> a great stat this century right since 2000 2001 season uh, the most amount of goals that a West Ham player has scored in one season in the Premier League was 14. And 14. That was it. Can you guess who it was? Who was it? Uh, 2005, 2006. Dean Ashton? No, no, it wasn't. No, no. Um, Carlton Cole? No. He scored a lot for no. them when they were in the championship a couple of years later. Right. I was going to say maybe Carlos Tevez, but he didn't score that many for them, did he? Or? No, he didn't. I think he might no. have been one year after that. It was yeah. Marlon Harewood. Oh, Marlon Harewood, of course. Yeah, Marlon yeah. Harewood scored 14 in the Premier League. And I I, I found out that I think um, I think Freddie Canute had also hit double figures around, around the 12-14 right. mark earlier, a few years before that. But normally, since then, since for Harewood's stunning 14, in the last 16 years, you'd have to average 10 Premier League goals a season to win the top goal scorer award at West Ham. 10 a season <laughs> I mean, that's hardly a top four challenging team you you got strikers in the Premier League who are hitting 10 in a couple of games 10 a season yeah no, of, yeah the likes of Payet Diafra Sacco um, there was really some 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 worrying stats for West Ham let's say um, as for their opponents this is where we, we get interesting Dan this is where it gets topical mm. this Burnley side <laughs> didn't even have a manager Ben Mee yeah. taking charge whilst defending as well. Um, they would have taken a point at West Ham at the start of the season or even a few months back. But I think anything less than three at this point is a little bit worrying. Um, so my final question is, was it a good choice to get rid of Sean Dyche on Friday? Or any day for that it was. It was a, a baffling choice, really, wasn't it? Because you kind of think, well, have, you, have they got somebody lined up already to, to, to slot in straight away? It would appear not. And, and you're wondering, well, why would you sack this guy who's been... 
you know, the source of so much stability for Burnley over the years. You know, he's done a, a remarkable job to, to get them in the Premier League in the first place, have them stay in the Premier League for such a long time. I do think they were going to go down if he stayed in charge, mm. personally. I think he's taken them as far as he can, the old cliche. Um, and I, don't, I do think a change was needed, whether it be now or in the summer. I don't know if they bring someone in in, in the next couple of days and they, they save them from relegation. It looks like a masterstroke if they bring someone in and and they go down anyway. People will be questioning what the hell the point of it all was. But yeah, I, th- I think a change was necessary at some point. It just it's just the timing of it is so odd to do it with you know six games of the season left to go and you know like say why not why not do it a couple of months ago and give someone to, who can come in. I mean even even sort of Sam Allardyce is yeah. is the obvious choice that people were thinking of as someone who could come in and take over and, and get them up. I think even he would struggle at this point, but. Yeah, that uh, that call aim at penalty miss could could be the huge turning point for them in the season because they they were looking so good and it all turned around from that point and, and they, they've dropped more points and it's, it's looking very bleak for them now. So yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see who they do bring in. I, I saw some talk about Chris Wilder as a possibility, which you know wouldn't be the the worst shout in the world, but I, get, I think it's a big ass for him to keep them up at this point. So I think uh, I think we'll be seeing Burnley in the Championship next season. Yeah, you're right. It does seem a bit odd to do it on such a short time scale. Like you're panicking, you're towards the end of the season. Have a replacement at least. Like yeah. what makes the Burnley board think that Ben Mee defending slash managing is going to do a better job than Sean Dyche? And yeah. if, if they're doing it to the point which I don't think they are, the sort of, you know what, we'll get rid of him and we'll plan to come up with someone stronger again next season once we go down, then they might as well get kept Dyche until the end. So they obviously thought we could do with a bit of a managerial boost, you know, the new manager bounce, as it's called. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, Can we do that without hiring another yeah, manager? Yeah, yeah. Let's try, let's find out. <laughs> to yeah. do that, you actually need to complete it and get a new manager in. <laughs> so it seems a little bit bizarre. Um, th- this kind of blends into my topic of the week, which was, did Sean Dyche do a good job at Burnley? I mean, I think it's, it is genuinely one of the best sort of achievements of the modern era to get get a, a Burnley, very unfashionable Burnley team in a very unfashionable part of the world on such a low budget into the Premier League and keep them there for so long competing. You know, until this point, they, they barely had any sort of real threat of relegation. They were always kind of like lower, lower mid-table, weren't they? Or whatever that position that's like 13th, 14th in the table is called. They got to Europe one went, season, they, I believe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? To think they were in, and, and they really struggled because they just didn't have the resources. And I think we have seen, you know, every, all good things must come to end. I think this has been the sort of natural endpoint of, of Deitch's tenure this season. But I do feel a bit sorry for him as well because they, they were taken over this time last year with sort of highfalutin ideas of, of actually having some money to spend. And we were saying, oh, wouldn't it be fascinating to see what Burnley would be like with money to spend? They've given him basically nothing to spend. Even, you know, having Chris Wood taken away from him mid-season, I think they only gave him half of the, the proceeds from that to, re, to reinvest. And, and they bought Peg Horse, who, yeah. who looks like a really good signing and, and scored again at the weekend, didn't he? But And, and you know, Maxwell Cornet, who is a fairly decent player, but, you know, I don't think he's getting in, you know, most Premier League teams, really. I don't think he's that good. That he's, he's, a, he's a real fortune changer for Burnley. So... You know, I think Burnley are pretty honest about what they are and have been over the time that Deitch is there. They they know the status in the Premier League. They know what kind of club they are and what kind of plays they can attract and what kind of football they have to play, just as a matter of, of survival. And I think Deitch has done an excellent job and and should be considered for other Premier League jobs in the future. And it'd be interesting to see if, with a bit of money to spend, whether we whether he might be, you know, spread his wings a little bit and become a, a more 
expansive, play most expansive style of football or whatever you want to call it. Because uh, I think I think he's he's done a good job with his hands tied behind his back a lot of the time. This this kind of is the point for me that I don't quite understand, and I know it's down to the owners, but surely Dyche has got to put a bit more pressure potentially on the owners to, to really say, look. We were in Europe a few seasons ago, and it was clear that we didn't have the resources or the, the squad size to deal with it. If you back me, this is what I could reduce. Because I was looking at, I think they spent seven seasons in the Premier League. I mean, they're not down yet, but, you know, let's say for all intents and purposes, they are. Uh, seven or eight seasons in the Premier League um, since they came back up. And at this rate, we're talking just TV money here, by the way, not revenue um, the, the club. TV money you're getting minimum for finishing bottom of the league about 90 million a season times that by six or seven or whatever it is right and you're looking over five six hundred million pounds that they've taken in the last few years and again I'm not saying give all that to die right (laughs) (laughs) here you go have a blast in the transfer window I know it's it's probably not that simple and I'm making it seem a more simpler equation than it needs to be. But why hasn't the money been available? Why is any Premier League team these days on a shoestring budget? <laughs> yeah, I've, you're asking the wrong person, really. I don't know the ins and outs of Burnley's finance, it's unfortunate, but it is, it is a valid question, I'm sure. And I know I, I can't imagine that Sean Dyche would not have uh, put pressure on the owners to give him more money to spend over the years. Um, but mm. it's, it's a question of in- infrastructure as well. Some Sometimes isn't it? They probably don't have the scout scouting network in place, and maybe they don't have that kind of intel that they can go out and and spend you know twenty thirty million on a player and, and it not feel like it's putting the entire future of the club mm. in in some sort of jeopardy. So it's going to be a pretty tough sell for the next manager to come in, I guess, whoever they've offered that job to, and say, look, we're pretty much out of the Premier League. Uh, do you want to come in and be in the Championship next season, and probably not have very much money to spend? <laughs> Or, and you've got an aging group of players, and we've got a couple of players now on high wages who we might have to get rid of in the summer. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a bit of a they're in a bit of a mess, really. If they do go down, Burnley, a bit of a pickle. Which maybe if they'd kept Dyche until the end of the season, it might have been different. I don't know. That that would have been my thought. Was someone like Valt Weghorst would have come for a lot of money? They took him away from a Champions League Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga. Yeah. Right, to, to near the bottom of the table. I have no idea what his wage will be, but I highly doubt he would have accepted a um, a wage cut upon relegation clause mm. in his contract. And the same thing probably goes for Maxwell Corner as well. I, I, I'm unsure. I think, like you said, a change did need to happen because I don't think Dyche has taken them anywhere in the last couple of years since, since that European season. Um, can you imagine if we were sat here in 10 years' time? It's the end of the 2032 season. Right, City are still battling Liverpool at the top and Sean Dyche has taken <laughs> Burnley to 17th. I mean, at what <laughs> yeah. point do you say, well, what are we all doing this for? <laughs> Not to get too philosophical on the podcast, but what are they doing it for? If they well, yeah. Really... yeah. Maybe this is a great opportunity for Pep Guardiola to finally prove that he is a good manager by managing Burnley, as people always say that he should, you know. Maybe this is... There you go, Pep. The job's open for you now, mate. What's stopping you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pep decides to move to Burnley once and for all. Prove the hate is wrong. Uh, honestly, that sounds like every sort of YouTuber doing a football manager experiment. 
that's what it that's what it'll be uh so that is all from this week thank you so much to dan for making it all the way through and to joel for putting in a good shift and coming off at half time injured um <laughs> of course you can email us with all of your feedback about the podcast any other questions that you want us to discuss the address is podcast at onefootball.com uh, so that's all we have time for this week thank you to my guest and guests as always uh, i hope you've enjoyed listening i will be back again next week so see you then I